Just a heads up before we get started, there's some light swearing in this episode. Okay, here's the show. I left a stable job while I was pregnant, nonetheless, and joined and took a chance to essentially work at a dream company in a dream role. And I remember even saying that in the interview process at Amazon. And I was like, look, I'm nervous. I'm pregnant. Like, are you guys sure about this? That's Nadine Salim describing her excitement and fear after landing a job at Amazon last year. She had quit a different job, a good job by her account, at another company to take on a role on Amazon's brand team. And she did it at a vulnerable time when she was expecting a baby. But Amazon, like so many tech companies, had great maternity leave benefits. Generous leave meant, in part, to attract women to jobs in a male-dominated industry. So Nadine was feeling pretty good a few months later when she finally went out on her maternity leave. Then, just weeks into her time away, with her newborn at home, she checked her work email. I wake up and I see my mail app, which is what I had used to have my work email, went from, I don't know, hundreds of emails down to one. It says important information about your role. It's like, I don't even need to open it. Like, I know what it says. The tech industry hit a rough patch late last year as interest rates rose and pandemic-era habits faded. Nadine learned she was one of hundreds of thousands of workers laid off from their very good, benefit-heavy tech jobs earlier this year, and one of many women who got the news while they were out on maternity leave. I just remember being like, holy shit, like, what do, what do we do? What am I going to do? I was like, am I really going to try to job hunt with a newborn? And I, you know, I remember just kind of talking, about, I broke down. I was in tears. The thing about the tech layoffs is they disproportionately affected women. According to an analysis from layoffs.fyi, women made up 45% of laid off tech employees from October, 2022 through this June. But women make up a lower percentage of tech workers overall. So today on the show, why so many women in tech lost their jobs this year in such a male-heavy industry, and how the tech industry can avoid doubling down on some of the mistakes that got us to this spot in the first place. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple card with Apple pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done. To understand why women were disproportionately impacted by layoffs in tech, we have to go back to the beginning, to the early to mid-2000s. Big companies like Facebook and Twitter were in their infancy, and the workforce reflected the leaders at these companies, meaning it was predominantly young white men. And according to Emma Goldberg, who covers the future of work for the New York Times, a traditional corporate structure was not a part of the equation. It's a great question. And I think, um, you know, Hollywood offers some touch points. A lot of people have probably seen the social network, which encapsulates a lot of the vibe and the atmosphere of early tech. The server detected intrusion. The candidate responsible has to drink a shot. Has of a program running that has a pop-up window appear simultaneously on all five computers. The last candidate to hit the window has to drink a shot. Plus every three minutes, they all have to drink a shot. It was definitely a lot less formalized than a lot of the the kind of major tech offices that we picture today. Because, you know, I think the industry got a lot of its juice, a lot of its energy from a sense of informality, Mm -hmm. a sense of, you know, less hierarchy, people sharing ideas with one another. Um, You know, this idea that really young people were in charge of a lot of money and a lot of power. And that that principle really animated the industry for a while. There was a sense that it was kind of like no parents, no rules. And the companies were not, you know, structured in the way um, like banks and law firms and these other kind of um, embodiments of traditional corporate authority were. They ran on a sense of, you know, casual, fast-moving idea generation. And back then, I mean, these were, when you say young people, it was it was mostly young men. They're sort of like the beating heart of these Silicon Valley companies that were, you know, staying late, playing ping pong, sleeping at the office, that kind of thing. It was a very male industry um, and and continues to be in a lot of ways. I think, you know, when when you think about the the male-dominated nature of the industry, it really does go back to early in the pipeline. Like men have just been overrepresented for a long time in, in engineering programs, in software engineering. And women have struggled to to break in and to get the opportunities that that men have. But then Somewhere along the line that changed, like maybe in the mid-2010s, you started to see these companies talking about diversity, DEI initiatives became a thing, progressive benefits came into play. I remember covering a lot of um, announcements about parental leave. Um, what, What changed? Yeah, I think as these companies got larger and you know, more structured, they grew up a little bit. They realized that they had to have HR departments. They had to have management systems. They they were too big to just kind of run on the ideas of whoever the genius founder happened to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you had like Facebook, for example, brought in Sheryl Sandberg to some people, kind of a parent figure. So there, there were more and more people coming into the industry to sort of impose some sense of structure and rules on what had previously been pretty freewheeling. And at the same time, tech companies also came to embody this new idea of what an office could be because they brought in more structure and they brought in more of a sense of, of rules. But at the same time, they maintained um, you know, a sense of fun and playfulness. And Google was famous for having like a big slide. There were companies that had you know happy hours and fitness classes on site. Um, and, and the companies really just embraced 
this sense of playfulness. And and that was really in the name of making people want to feel like they could spend all their hours at the office and just have their Mm -hmm. whole lives take place at the office. Mm -hmm. Um, They wanted people to feel like they could do their laundry at the office, have three meals a day there, do their workouts, have their entire social life there. And, And when you think about who that type of work style best serves, of course, it's going to be people who don't have childcare responsibilities. So that system was still set up to best serve men. But still, these companies are saying, at least publicly, we want to hire more women. We want to hire more people of color. We're going to give the best uh, maternity leave possible. We're we're very sensitive to all that. Like they, they appear to be trying, even though the culture is still sort of going in the direction of favoring the single young man, right? Absolutely. And for, you know, quite a while, tech companies were kind of projecting to young job seekers this idea that these companies were a place where you could sort of align those elusive ideas of doing well and Mm -hmm. doing good. You know, like you were working on these big, complicated problems in the world and, and making a massive impact while making a lot of money. And they realized that if they were going to telegraph those values, they also had to kind of get their, their insides in order by, you know, diversifying their staff, having DEI initiatives, um, finding ways to build more of a pipeline for women and people of color. For years, the tech industry thrived in the era of low interest rates. They hired like mad. Amazon, in particular, doubled the size of its corporate staff from 2019 to 2022, including in departments like DEI, recruiting, and HR. But as inflation began to rise and the Fed started raising interest rates, companies realized that the easy money was gone. Their stock prices tanked. And late last year, they began to ruthlessly cut tens of thousands of jobs. The easy money economy ground to a halt, um, in, in part because of the, that change in interest rates. And so all of a sudden, you started to see every household name in tech doing massive layoffs. And it was, you know, Meta, Google, Salesforce, Amazon, really no one was spared. And I think there was a little bit of a sense that once some companies were doing layoffs, other companies were hopping on board because you had the opportunity to kind of bury your layoffs in the news cycle if you're doing it at the same time as everybody else. Yeah, everyone, everyone's doing it. So let's just, let's do it too. We Exactly. <laughs> People were hopping on the bandwagon. Yeah. And so um, one reason we wanted to talk to you is because there's this data out now um, from that site, layoffs.fyi, that looked at uh, like a a little sample, I think, of 3,400 workers, um, tech workers who were laid off. They found that 45% of them were women, 55% were men, which at first you're like, oh, well, of course, there are more men than women were laid off. So that's totally fine. Um, But that's not quite the way to look at it, right? Right. I mean, I think what's important to bear in mind when you think about that number is that women only represented about 39% of the workforce overall. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they might have been about 45, 46% of the layoffs, but they were only 39% of the workforce. So the question to then ask is why were women overrepresented in these mass layoffs? Answer it, Emma. Well, I think one of the issues going on here is that laid-off workers were um, more likely to be in positions that tech companies might have been considering peripheral to the core work of the company. And that checks out when you think about the fact that men are still overrepresented in software engineering. 
So when tech companies are realizing they need to hit their diversity goals, they're going to hire women in positions in um, parts of the company like HR or customer service, which also in the minds of hiring managers, kind of play into some of the stereotypes of what they think women might be better at, like the kind of people-oriented positions, the the mm-hmm. nurturing and, um, you know, that side of the company rather than the alone in a room bent over a laptop with headphones on stereotype of an engineer. I was thinking about this a lot because, I mean, does it mean that the diversity efforts around hiring for these companies were sort of not as successful? I mean, they were never, the gender balance was never there. They were never successful in getting to some kind of 50-50 gender balance. But even beyond that, the hiring that did take place, since it was so skewed to the supposedly non-essential parts of the business, does that mean the diversity efforts sort of weren't very good in the first place? It reveals what it really takes to diversify a company. Um, In a lot of instances, when companies set goals around diversity, um, they're they're thinking about how to kind of meet those goals in an aesthetic or public presenting way. They're like, we need to communicate to the public and to our own employees that we've hired X percent of women or people of color. But they're not necessarily thinking about how to really bake that into the DNA of the company and make those gains sustainable. Because Mm -hmm. if you're going to make sustainable gains around DEI, that has to also come from the pipeline. Like you have to be thinking about how do we train women and people of color to do the tasks that are core to the company, like engineering. Um, So if, if you hire people into positions that are kind of peripheral to what the company does, then you might not be actually meeting your goals around diversity in a sustainable way. And I was also thinking, I mean, it's not just in tech that there's this concept with layoffs, you know, last in, first out. Um, And with tech, that's almost sort of like literally the story because in a way, women and, and people of color and women of color were last in just broadly speaking, because these companies all started, like you said, as like these very male dominated cultures. And, and, and then, you know, finally, when the money was really, really finally flowing, they sort of grew up and hired all these other people. So they were last in. And now with these layoffs, they seem like first out, like, oh, we don't, we don't need you. We can go back to the way it was. It does feel like that is a little bit of the story that's come through. We also have to look at, at the notion that, First of all, like you said, it's it's last in, first out. But people also really need allies and mentors within a company in order to succeed and climb the ranks of those companies. So if the companies still have men, and especially white men, overrepresented in their leadership ranks and, and in C-suites, then the people who get the best mentorship and the best kind of support um, and, and, and opportunities are often going to be the younger men and especially white men who have people who kind of look at them and see younger versions of themselves. Right, right. That that makes sense. You have a mentor that's sort of, I used to be just like you and I can show you how to do it just like I did. Um, and that's not intentionally discriminatory, but that's sort of how it works out. Exactly. We still really have, I think, in the industry, a lot of these kind of myths of white male genius that get perpetuated by 
um, C-suites that are over-representing, you know, men and especially white men. When we come back, you'd think being on maternity leave would offer you some job security, but you'd be wrong. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. With so many women losing their jobs, it was perhaps inevitable and terrible that many of them were out on maternity leave. Emma spent time talking with these women. I've spoken to quite a few too. Being home with a newborn is already an emotionally fraught time. Add a layoff to the situation and you're left reeling. You think you're taking maternity leave or paternity leave because you have a legal right to, and that's reaffirmed in certain tech company policies. And tech companies have been among the most generous with parental leave, in part because they realized they needed to kind of make those big leaps in order to diversify their ranks and communicate that um, parental leave was was part of the generous perk packages. So people were out on their leaves thinking that they were entirely protected, and then they realized that being parental leave didn't offer them any special protection from a mass layoff that would have happened anyway. But the thing is, for people who were on parental leave, it's especially terrifying to receive news of a layoff because they have more financial pressure than ever. Um, and, and, and yet they're suddenly losing their source of income and their source of health care. And, and that's a really terrifying reality, especially because they're on parental leave. So they have even less time than mm-hmm. usual to kind of jump on, you know, the the job application spree and start looking for a new position. So it's both more terrifying and um, more logistically t- um, challenging than for their counterparts who aren't on leave. A few of the women I spoke to, and I don't know about you, are like, well, I'm not going to get a job for a while. I'm just going to stay, you know, be with my baby for a while. And you can you can kind of see how that could lead to, you know, women sort of dropping out of the workforce. It's kind of like a callback to the days before there was any parental leave and that's sort of how it worked. (laughs) Someone would have a baby and then not work for a few years, you know, and then maybe get back into the workforce or maybe not. Exactly. And applying for jobs with with a newborn or, you know, a, a baby in those early years is just impossibly challenging from a time management perspective. And then also really challenging because prospective employers could look at you. And even if this is illegal, they could like make certain judgments around what they think you have time for. Again, it goes back to that issue that for a lot of employers, the ideal employee is still thought of as someone who has no outside obligations beyond the company. They, you know, are really putting up on a pedestal those 
childless single men who they feel like will just jump on a laptop or pick up the phone at any hour. And so for people who have just been laid off, who also have newborns, it's more challenging than ever to combat those stereotypes. Right. And you can't help but wonder if those stereotypes played any role in the layoffs themselves. I mean, none of the tech companies, I don't think, have been accused of discrimination. Maybe Maybe Twitter was, but the case was dismissed um, in how they conducted these layoffs. But it's hard not to think that some of that, even unconsciously, played some role here, you know? I have to say that was something that lingered in the minds of a lot of sources who I spoke with. Um, The people I talked to said that even though they knew kind of from a rational perspective that their ability to take parental leave had been legally protected, it just leaves all these fears and this sense of paranoia of like, what if I brought this on myself? And there's there's no way to really confirm it one way or the other because the companies mm-hmm. are never going to say so. But they just wonder like, it, was it, you know, out of sight, out of mind that they'd been out of work for a while and so they were, you know, easier to put in the bucket of the mass layoff. That's a horrible fear to live with. And it also just makes it so much more challenging to ever think about taking leave again. Yeah. It, and it's definitely a fear. Um, I've been out on leave and you, when you go out, you're like, are they going to find someone else to do my work? Are they going to do it better than me? And then they're going to realize they don't need me after all. Like that's just a basic fear of going out on leave. I don't think it changes no matter how generous the company is. I mean, I think it helps when the company is generous and encouraging. And, and a lot of these people, they were encouraging and, you know, made to feel really good when they went out, but you still have that. I don't think that that paranoia goes away, really. And I think it it points back to um, the narrative we were talking about, that companies might kind of leap to put in place diversity initiatives and initiatives that help underrepresented populations. But if those aren't really, really deeply rooted in the culture of the company, then in the long term, they're not necessarily going to fully work. Yeah. So, you know, if if you're if you're saying like, oh, we just need to hit these diversity metrics, so we're going to hire up more women and people of color in HR, but then those are the first people to be affected by layoffs. Or if you're going to put in place really generous packages around parental leave, um, because you want to telegraph to prospective employees and to employees and to the public that that's something you care about. But then, you know, people while they're on parental leave um, are suddenly affected by layoffs at the most vulnerable moment in their lives and careers. How much have those really taken root in the culture? Further compounding the problem is the move by big tech to pull back on some of the pandemic era benefits, specifically working from home. Some of the biggest companies in tech, Twitter, Apple, and Salesforce, have all started requiring employees to come into the office a certain amount of time during the week. For new mothers who are juggling their full-time jobs and having a newborn, the shift away from remote work is especially challenging. I think it's really important for companies to be asking themselves about how remote work is affecting women and and diversity initiatives. Um, Because one of the the really striking findings from surveys of remote work is that um, people of color and women have been some of the quickest to embrace 
remote work. Mm -hmm. There were survey results that found that that, um, Black knowledge workers were more likely to indicate a preference for remote work because they said that working outside the office made it easier to avoid microaggressions and kind of cliquish office politics. Um, And then for caregivers, they were saying that remote work allowed them to, you know, tend to family obligations more easily. But now there's new research coming out that shows that remote work actually affects the amount of feedback people get on their work. So there was a really um, important survey, research that came out from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York this spring that showed that people who were working remotely actually got less feedback and and this was actually from a tech company and they showed that the number of like lines of feedback someone got on their code was higher when they were in person so the question we have to ask about all of this is are companies then kind of going to see potentially people who are working remotely or are, are those people going to struggle more because they're not getting as much feedback? And is that going to disproportionately affect women and people of color? Those are some of the questions that we have to start asking. Um, and, and we are seeing companies, I think, shift into a new phase on remote work, what I called in, in a recent article, kind of the desperation phase, because they can't figure out how to get people back. <laughs> right. And so you're seeing like Salesforce, for example, offered like a $10 charitable donation on behalf of every employee for every day they came into the office office for a 10-day period um, in late spring. Does that work? Is anyone coming in? They're like, I think in my mind, I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to give $10 and stay home. (laughs) I think it depends because I think one of the things that it does do is is show employees how much companies are really invested in them coming back. (laughs) You had Google also say um, that they, you know, managers could start to take into account office attendance and performance reviews. So I think employees are seeing more and more from their managers that this is being taken really, really seriously. And coming off of months of layoffs, um, I think you might see fear start to drive some employees back to the office. So it's like there was this remote work trend, which was really good, we think, for diversity, but now it's reversing itself and that might be really bad for diversity. Exactly. So some of the, you know, the people who really gained from remote work were working parents who have always really struggled to, you know, do the magic of somehow being at your desk at 4 p.m. and also being at school pickup. They suddenly had that burden like really, really eased up. And now all of a sudden that's going into reverse. And so companies that have been preaching um, about diversity are now going to have to face the question of how do you allow workers who really need the ease of flexible work, um, you know, retain some of those gains while also giving people some of the benefits of the office. That's something we're seeing companies really start to struggle with right now. Emma, um, a lot of these companies release these diversity reports every year. Are you expecting that the layoffs will change the way those diversity reports look? You know, they say percentage of leadership is women or black or percentage overall and things like that. I think it's possible. We won't know until we see the numbers, but you know, women being overrepresented in layoffs is definitely a concerning statistic. But that, you know, being 45 or 46% of all the layoffs, even though they're they're a smaller percentage of the overall workforce, that could be reflected in the numbers. For Emma, she sees this moment as pivotal for big tech, one where the policies they set today will determine whether or not their commitment to diversity ever meant anything to them. 
we're at an inflection point where companies have to make new policies around remote and office work that will affect workers for many, many years to come. And so I think what a lot of experts I've spoken to are saying is they're hoping that companies do do that policymaking in a really intentional way. So if workers are asking for flexibility or the ability to kind of come in later in the workday so they can do school drop-off or leave a little bit earlier so they can do school pickup or find mentorship that really helps them to succeed, this is also an opportunity to make policies that will help underrepresented people thrive for a much longer period of time than just the coming weeks or months. Emma, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was such an interesting conversation. We reached out to Amazon for comment on this story, but didn't hear back by the time of recording. Emma Goldberg covers the future of work for the New York Times. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Madeline Ducharme. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. And you can catch me over at Slate Money. It comes out Saturdays. Thanks for listening.